Now, when fairy tales end, they have a distinctive set of last words. You know them. And they lived happily ever after. Today we travel to the end of the tale of Esther, and they do not live happily ever after, despite all that has come before. As we travel to the, for the last time to the ancient Persian Empire, it would seem like things are set up for them to live happily ever after. The great enemy, Haman, of the Jews is dead. 75,000 sworn enemies of the, of, the, of the nation of Israel were destroyed. There were literally no more enemies of the people of God in the land. Esther continued to reign as queen over the entire Persian Empire. Mordecai was elevated to prime minister of the largest empire to this point in the history of the world. All seems well, but everything is not as it should be. Yes, there was a great victory won, but the victory was hollow. And today we're going to compare this victory, which rings somewhat hollow, with the victory we have received in Christ. Two simple points. First, a new feast. I'm going to begin in Esther chapter 9, verse 20, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the book. Now, as you know, if you've been with us, all the Jews of the land, we saw a hint of this last week, celebrated their new lease on life. They spontaneously, after their enemies were destroyed, enjoyed and held feasts and exchanged gifts. Mordecai, the prime minister, got wind of this celebration, and he goes ahead and he formalizes the holiday. Remember, the Persians loved to issue degree, uh, dec decrees. They loved to tell people what to do in writing, and so Mordecai shows his very Persian credentials by doing a very Persian thing. He, enter he, he issues another decree. And this time, he issues the decree directing the Jews to celebrate what's called Purim. Verse 20, chapter 9. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food, one another to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do, and what Mordecai had written to them. As you know, their sorrow was abruptly reversed to gladness. Their mourning gave way to a joyous celebration. They exchanged gifts and they feasted together. There was cause for great joy. And so then the narrator, to make sure that we remember, gives us a brief summary of all the events that took place in this unexpected reversal. If you've been going with us through the book of Esther, 
this will sound very familiar. Verse 24. Here's the reason they're celebrating. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and what they faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the appointed time every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city. And these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor the commendation a commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So we note with great pomp and great circumstance that the name of this holiday would be Purim. Pur is an Akkadian word, an old Babylonian word, which means lots. And so the Hebrew adopts that word and says, now we're going to call this Purim. And what it does is it harkens back to the Esther chapter 3 when Haman cast lots to determine which day would be the day that he would set for the destruction of the nation of the, Jew, the Jewish people in Persia. But instead of destroying even one solitary Jew, Jew, he brought destruction upon himself. And so we have this ironic, this ironic name for a new feast and celebration. And the Jewish people have been celebrating Purim ever since the days of Esther. It is still a joyous celebration, usually happening in March, when the victory over Haman is commemorated all over the world. Now, I said this was kind of a hollow victory. Notice again what's missing from this holiday, from this feast. Look again at verse 28. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Like the rest of the book, there is no mention here, again, of God's role or direction. There is no mention of God's protection. There is no mention of God's deliverance. There is no direction from the leaders of the people for them to bind their hearts to their God. There is no praising of God. There is no describing God as mighty or kind or merciful or powerful. There is just a direction to celebrate Purim. Now compare this direction with Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33, when the nation is directed to observe the Feast of Booths. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, 
and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. Again, notice the direction, to the Lord. And on the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. That day is holy, that's why. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and you should do no ordinary work. The nation were, was to cease and worship the Lord and do all that week for the Lord. And no such direction is found in Purim. That's why I say it's kind of a hollow holiday. And then this holiday is popularized and form, formalized with a celebrity recommendation. Just like today, Instagram influencers try to get people to buy products and to do certain things. The Instagram influencers of that day, Esther and Mordecai, lend their influence in this new celebration. Verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abahath of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Again, let's send letters, let's send decrees. It's the Persian way. So what happens? Verse 30. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth. These horses are getting really tired going all over this place. That the days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons. As Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts and their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed the pra these practices of Purim, and it is, was recorded in writing. Again, the Persian way is to write it all down, make sure everybody's clear, and then write it all down again, and then make sure that everybody's clear and send decrees all over the place, and why not? Here we have a Jewish holiday formalized in a very distinctive Persian way. The new feast, this new holiday, rings hollow. It also rings hollow when we examine the ever after. Look at chapter 10. Okay, now everything's done, and we have the closing of the book. Look at the actions of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. What does he do? Verse 1. King Ahasuerus celebrated along with the Jews. Said, I have been evil, and now I will follow God. No. King Ahasuerus imposed, ta imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Well, he's the same. Even though he's somewhat hapless, as we've seen through this book, his power has now grown so that he can tax everyone from sea to shining sea. He has more power. What does this tell us? Well, despite all the events in Esther, the Persian Empire does not fundamentally change. It continued writing decrees. It continued working in justice. It continued working, uh, raising taxes. And the Jews, they did not pray to God. They did not praise God. They did not go home as they were directed by the prophets. But they did, however, pay new taxes. And then we have these words that close the book. Verse 2. <coughs> and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written 
in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And you might think, that doesn't sound hollow at all. Here we have Mordecai, the Jew, who has now been elevated to the prime minister. He has the highest office in the land, save one. Save Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the king. But here we have Mordecai, who has all kinds of power. He has his hand on the lever of, on the levers of power. And what does he do with these these, these powers that he has now, well, he, what he does is he, he seeks the welfare of his people and speaks peace to all his people. It's wonderful news for the Jews of Persia that Mordecai was raised to this position and that he would continually work welfare and speak peace for them. That's wonderful news. But, how, but it is still hollow. How? Well... Because the one speaking peace and working for the welfare of the people reported to a fickle and feckless king. He's second in the land. He's second in Persia. Not first, second. The good that Mordecai could do for his people was significant, but it would forever be limited because of the king of Persia that Mordecai served under. A wonderful victory, but to a degree, it was hollow. Now, in Christ, let's think about the victory we have. The victory we have now in Christ is not hollow, but enduring. Why? Because our king, King Jesus, is second to no one. Mordecai was raised to the second one in the land. Why? Well, because he saved the king from death. And because the king had a sleepless night when he woke up and he remembered, oh yeah, Mordecai did this, and you know Haman was evil, so let's just raise up Mordecai. Well, our king has been raised to the highest throne in the land. Why? Not because he saved anyone from, not because he saved himself from death, but because he himself went into the realm of death and came back so that he might save his people from their death. Our king rules from a throne that is above all thrones. Our king rules from an office that is above all offices. Our king is the king of kings. He is beholden to no king. Where Xerxes was fickle and feckless, our king is mighty and steadfast. <coughs> Hasuerus died and has never been heard from again. And his empire is long gone. Mordecai was installed and occupied that office, presumably until his death. But think about Jesus. Jesus was installed, not before his death, but after his death. 
and he will always occupy his office. And the days of, the, of his kingdom and the expansion of his kingdom will know no end. Do you see the difference? One victory is temporary. Another is forever. Think about it this way. Mordecai sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to his people for all of his days, and that was a good thing. Yet we speak of Mordecai in the past tense because he is not here. He is gone. Jesus we must speak of in the present tense because today Jesus seeks the welfare of his people and he today speaks peace to his people. Both today and ever onward. <coughs> Jesus has won a wonderful victory for us. He has defeated he has defeated not the forces and plans of Haman, but he has defeated the forces and plans of death. He entered death's realm and killed death. And so when he seeks the welfare for his people, he can even protect them from death. When he speaks peace to his people, this is far more significant than the peace that Mordecai had to speak. We now hear from Jesus, peace. Peace. We have peace with God. The enmity that every human is born with, that angst against God, for those of us that are Christians, Jesus speaks peace. God is no longer angry with us for our sins. Mordecai worked for the welfare of his people for a time, and Jesus for all times. And the welfare he gives us is forever. What does he offer? Here's an example. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. As Paul opens his letter, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see what he's saying? He's saying we have been blessed in Christ with unlimited blessing. There is no sense in which God holds back one iota because we have been blessed in Christ because of the, Christ, uh, because of the victory Christ has won on our behalf. We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This is true for every person here who trusts Jesus Christ. You're given, because of Christ's victory, access to every spiritual blessing. <clears throat> he is not now, nor will He ever hold out on you. We are now His property. And we can't be rejected. Not just that we can't be rejected by the Father. We, he goes much further than that. It's not just that we're forgiven and He won't hold our sins against us. He actively works for our good. It's not as if God in heaven says, I no longer hate you. I mean, that's good. I no longer hate your sin. I mean, that's good. But what's much better is this. And I will pour out untold and uncounted blessings upon you. That's a different thing, friends. That's the victory we have in Christ. He holds nothing back. 
and he pledges to work in us so that we might grow more and more into the image of Jesus. See, it's not enough to be the best version of ourselves. It's for us to become like Christ. And that's the preeminent blessing we receive here. That's the preeminent thing that we have as Christians. That's why our victory in Christ that we did nothing to win is not hollow, but enduring. He speaks to us peace because He is the Prince of Peace. No longer does the Father look to us to make war on us for our sins. We have peace with God because Jesus has opened the way and the Lamb of God has come for us. Because our king is also a priest. In ancient Israel, kings could not be priests. David was king only, not a priest. No one was permitted to occupy both offices. The king led the government priests oversaw the temple. But here we have Jesus, the one who has won for us a greater, more enduring victory. He occupies the office of both king and priest. He also occupies the office of prophet, but that's something different. We're talking about king and priest. Why does this matter? Ortland says it this way. Christ is your king, representing God to you, but also but he is also your priest representing you to God. We've thought about his kingship. Let us take a moment on his priesthood. Jesus represents us to God. I'm not talking about how we are to represent Jesus in the world. I'm talking about how us, as Christians, are now represented by Jesus Christ before the Father. We read this all throughout Hebrews. Here's an example. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Now there's one thing that a priest never did in the temple, and that was to sit down. There was always too many things to do. There were always animals to sacrifice. There are always people to see to that were bringing in sacrifices. The priest never sat down. And in fact, read Exodus when the Lord directs the people to build the tabernacle. He never ever says, make a chair. There was no place to sit. But here we see Jesus, who, as the priest, sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Let's keep reading. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, that's his, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or are being made holy. In other words, he sits down because there's no sacrifice left. There's no sacrifice necessary for the people of God anymore. He represents us before God. Now, perfectly. Your sin, my sin, all of our sin, 
has been heaped upon Jesus and by the, un, the eternal, unchanging decree of God, which is better and more enduring than any Persian decree, our Savior became our substitute by enduring six hours hanging upon the gallows of Calvary. And as he writhed in ang agony, he became our sin bearer. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. <clears throat> so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so he represents you as your sin bearer. He took your sin, Christian, and gave you his righteousness. Do you see why this isn't a hollow victory? Let's take a real practical example. Think of some personal sin. I'm talking about a struggle. Something specific. Something particular. Think about it in your mind right now. Something that you struggle against. Worry. Greed. Anger. Lust. Maybe control. Selfishness. A desire to isolate. Whatever. Think of that. Now, when as Christians conviction comes, you may be tempted to feel completely compromised and permanently unrighteous. And in yourself, you are. But friends, we are represented by another. And his name is Jesus. And he is not compromised in any way, shape, or form. He is the one who now represents us. He has taken our sin. He is, he, because we are in Christ, when the Father looks at us, he sees our representative, Jesus, who has taken our sin and declared us righteous. Luther may have said it best when he said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell and are completely unrighteous and totally unworthy and completely compromised, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf and even represents me now to the Father. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, where he is, there I shall be also. That's the truth now for us. That's the victory that we have in Christ that is not hollow, but enduring. We don't merely have a political victory to point to. We have a victory that is for all eternity. We don't have a king who will be one day deposed. We don't have a king who will one day suffer a coup. We have a king who is high and lifted up, who is reigning right now in power and in strength, and who is second to no one. And he's our king. And he's our priest. And he has won the victory for us. This victory, unlike the one we've seen in Esther, is not hollow, but enduring. That's the nature of our victory, friends, as Christians. And as we end, Esther, I have three modest thoughts, three takeaways 
for us as we look to live as faithful exiles in light of this enduring victory that Jesus has won for us. First, our future is happily ever after, just not yet. Our future is happily ever after, but just not yet. Friends, this is not our home. This world will never be our home until Jesus blows that trumpet. We are now and will always be exiles here, and we're going to feel a little bit out of place. The priorities we have are going to be different from the world around us. The things that we love are going to be different than the people that we interact with. Part of the reason we travel to ancient Persia, which seems so foreign and strange, is to remind ourselves that our modern homeland is foreign and strange as well. Because this homeland we live in is not our home. We study an empire that has risen and fallen, and we see how foolish it is to seek the favor of those kings that are temporary, here today and gone tomorrow. We see how foolish it is to invest our happiness in things that pass away. The heroes of our faith, they understood this. Hebrews 11 highlights men and women who have gone before us, who were compelling examples of faith. They trusted Jesus. And part of the reason that they were compelling is that they desired, quote, a better country. I hope as we've gone through Esther... Something inside of you has begun to long for that better country. And friends, it's not the United States. This country will never truly be our home. You know how I can tell? Many ways. But one way is by hospitals. You know what? I want to live in a place that doesn't need hospitals. This week, I spent a big chunk of my week in a hospital, not because I was sick, but because my wife's grandmother was confined to a bed, a bed that she probably won't rise from. She had tubes and machines connected to her. She was... We were celebrating Thanksgiving in a cabin. She, was, she lives in Tucson. She wasn't able to make it all the way home, so she was actually aerovac to a hospital here. She's 90. She's a Christian. And it can be tempting just to think, hey, she's lived a good life. That's, death is part of life. Death is not part of life. Death is an uninvited guest into this world. I can never be comfortable with death. I don't want to make deals with death. Even as a 90-year-old woman who lived a faithful life lies in bed, soon to be taken to Jesus. We need to live in a place that doesn't have hospitals. I asked her how she wanted me to pray. And she said, I want to go home. And she didn't mean Tucson. And I said, listen, if you see Jesus, just go with him. We'll see you later. See, we need a victory that makes hospitals 
obsolete. We need a better country than we have here. Friends, in our new country, we're not going to have First Presbyterian Hospital or Banner Heaven Hospital. We're not going to have level one trauma units. But we're going to have a country with no death, no sadness, no crime, no pain, no hospitals. Our end is happily ever after, just not yet. Our victory is not hollow, but enduring. Until then, feast and fast. Throughout Esther, there were all kinds of feasting. They knew how to party. We Christians, we should feast and fast. We should be good at this. I'm not talking about Jewish feasts. Just because we'll never attain happily ever after does not mean there aren't good things to enjoy. There are. And we should be at the front of the line enjoying God's many good gifts. Good food, friends, times, family, Taking time to rest, thinking t- taking time just to thank God for his many blessings. Think about the gift God has given us in food. He doesn't just say, hey, listen, here's how it's going to work. You hook up a cord to your arm, get the sustenance you need, and leave. Unplug it and then go. He gave us mouths with taste buds so that we can enjoy good food and taste it and enjoy it. And avoid sushi. (laughs) We have blessing piled upon blessing. Woe to us if we don't feast and stop and count our many blessings. There's a time for feasting, but there's also a time for fasting. It's good for us to take time to deny ourselves of legitimate blessings, legitimate gifts, so that we might awaken a spiritual hunger called to do both. We're to be a people both of feasting and fasting. When we feast, we're not dishonoring God. But if we only feast, we're dishonoring God. When we fast, we're honoring God. But if we only fast, we're dishonoring God. We need to be both. We need to be both. In this world, this is not happily ever after, at least not yet. Until then, we should feast and fast. And lastly, Most of the time, God will seem absent. God will seem absent. I have gone to many, many, many church services. I have preached now many hundreds of sermons. Never once have I seen a vision, has an angel come and said, hey, listen, just wanted to come from heaven to say, hey, guys, Never once have I heard a heavenly trumpet. Never once have I, have I seen something that would qualify as an unquestionable Red Sea kind of experience. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but yet he's forcefully at work. You know, we can think that because God seems absent, he is absent. That is not true. That is not true. 
Just because God doesn't do things that we expect, just because His purposes are often accomplished, not because of a grand strategy, but because of the quiet, forceful working in the ordinary days of life, does not mean that He doesn't have mighty acts to accomplish. His mighty purposes are often accomplished through mundane, faithful moments that nobody will see. Think of this series of normal-seeming events through Esther. Vashti's removed, but that makes way for Esther. Mordecai discovers a plot and saves the king, waits five years. Haman hatches a plot, but ends up hanging on his own gallows. Mordecai's honored because of a royal insomniac. Mordecai is raised to prime minister. The people are saved. <coughs> this is not the result of a grand strategy, but the quiet, unnoticed, forceful working of God. No miracles, no visions, no charismatic leaders, no sea parted, no angels with flaming swords, just the quiet, unstoppable progress of God. And friends, that is the way the Lord will normally work in our lives. He will often seem absent. Now don't get me wrong. I pray that we see days of mighty works. I pray that we see days of revival. I pray that, that, that there will be times that our church feels as if it's a suburb of heaven. I pray for that. But most of the time, God will work in the quiet, in the ordinary, in the mundane moments of life. Friends, do not fall into the trap of thinking that because you cannot perceive His work, He is not working. No! He shares many blessings with us, but one thing He doesn't often share are His plans for us. We are often, more often than not, left to wonder and fight for faith to believe God is working and that he knows what he's doing. He is working, even though you may not be able to perceive it. His work is not limited to our power of perception or for the measure of our expectation. His work goes far beyond what we can imagine. So, most of the time, he's going to seem absent. And that's why we look to the victory that we have been given in Christ. That's why we look to him and recognize he has done what we could not. That's why each week as we gather together, we look on Sunday mornings to firmly fix ourselves on Christ, the author, the perfecter of our work, the one who has come to save us from our sins, the one who will come back to bring us to our Father. That victory, friends, that victory is not hollow, but enduring. And that victory, for us as Christians, is all that matters. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your victory. I pray that we would be people who, as we count our blessings, Turn those blessings into thanksgiving. I pray that as we see our need, Lord, I pray that we would be quicker to pray than to strategize. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to put our faith and our hope not in not in things that pass away, but in things that are enduring. I pray that we would not fall into the trap of putting our hope in kings and presidents and senators and representatives, but I pray that we would be a people who work for good things, but have our hope firmly planted with you at your throne, Jesus. I pray that we would be a people who recognize that you have won a great victory for us that we could not win on our own. And Lord, I pray that you would build us up, Lord, so that as we live in these days of faith and not sight, that we would not think that just because we can't see what you're doing, that you're doing nothing. Lord, we pray that you would do more than we can ask or imagine, because we know you can. And Lord, I pray that we would see days of awakening and revival. But if we don't, Lord, help us not to become disillusioned because we can't see what you're doing. And Lord, help us to ever and always give thanks and celebrate this enduring victory. Jesus, thank you that we can speak of you in the present tense and the future tense. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that one day we will see you and we will be like you. Preserve us until that day, Lord. And in your mighty name we pray. Amen.